Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale, episode 10, with me, Eason. And me, Bex. And this episode is a very, very special episode. Yay! Yay! For no other reasons. <laughs> um, no, so this is an episode where we're going to do a retrospective on one of our favourite shows mm. from some time ago. It was a show that aired in the late 90s. Yeah. 99, 2000. Ran for two seasons. It was sort of shifted around between networks it didn't really get like a proper fixed airtime and it's kind of been forgotten as well in the catalogue of genre shows from the 90s Mm. and a lot of shows from that period suffered a similar fate but some of them have had a chance to be reappraised and people look back on them and have tried to resurrect them etc but this is one show which we don't feel gets enough attention and uh, we thought because we like it so much we would talk about it today at length at length uh i wonder if there's any more of a hint we can give them about that yeah <laughs> it was a show torn from its network cancelled in its prime long overdue a dvd resurrection shanda Smythe and henry mcneil used to fight to save lost souls with no third season you could only watch it on youtube it was a battle of good versus evil g versus z that's what it is So if you needed a hint, that was it. <laughs> right, so G versus E, or as it was later known, good versus evil. Mm. What was that about then? In a nutshell, it's about these two guys, Chandler Smythe and Henry McNeil. They're both dead. They weren't quite good enough to get into heaven, not bad enough to go to hell. So they are recruited into this heavenly police force type organisation called The Core. And the purpose of the core here on Earth is to fight these demon-type creatures called Morlocks who are trying to tempt human beings into signing these Faustian deals, selling their soul to get something temporary here on Earth. Uh, They try and kill the Morlocks, they try and save the humans, get them to stop or renounce their deals and save their souls. And the idea is that if they spend long enough fighting for the core, eventually they will prove themselves worthy and they will be able to move on into heaven from where they are. Reunite with their loved ones and live happily ever after. Exactly, yeah. So this show starred kind of a core of four people. Mm-hmm. Chandler Smythe was played by Clayton Rona, mm-hmm. who has been in a tremendous number of different tv shows kind of guest you know guest spots in loads of american tv shows Mm. he had long runs on this and a couple of other sort of you know i think it was in murder one but the second season of that yeah yeah um he's kind of a bit everywhere and once you see his face you'll think ah that's the guy yeah it's that guy um he appeared like in daybreak as well around the Mm. same time but he's been in absolutely tons of stuff um, I remember from an episode of The X-Files. <laughs> it was in the Rain King episode, for anyone who cares. Who else was in it? Uh, so Henry McNeil, his partner. Played by Richard Brooks. Richard Brooks, Law and Order. Yeah, he was in Law and Order for a, a long time, I think, yeah. before doing this. Yeah. And uh, people might recognise him from Firefly as well. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So he is the guy who turns up in the very last episode, the ob- uh, Objects in Space. 
he appears as the bounty hunter who boards the uh, the ship and kind of is like the only other uh, guest actor in uh, in that episode. So I suppose he also has form for being in shows that get cancelled prematurely. <laughs> was he in was he in Brimstone as well? He may have popped up in an episode of Brimstone. I think several of them may have been a, in Brimstone. A lot of people popped up in episodes of Brimstone. <laughs> And they didn't pop up in anymore because uh, it died a death. Mm. But it was a cracking show. <laughs> so they are the kind of mismatched double act at the heart of the show. Although mm. they don't stay mismatched for very long, actually. No. They become very good friends. And it's their friendship is really the heart of the show, I think. And we should point out, actually, that they are from different eras as well. Yeah. Because Chandler is well, so this was well in modern times back in sort of 1999. Yeah. He gets killed then, so he's a journalist and he gets killed actually whilst uh, witnessing a crime being committed that involves uh, Morlocks. Although he's human at the time, he sees this happen and he gets killed in the process. Um, Henry McNeil was actually killed back in the 70s, mm. um, and that kind of adds this interesting pulp fictiony kind of dynamic to the whole thing because he's kind of this street smart 70s shaft style character but he doesn't really play to too many stereotypes actually Mm. he becomes this kind of cool hip 70s dude who's retained some of that but he's not sort of stuck in the 70s he's clearly matured with time etc but he plays yeah the kind of cool suave 70s detective to the more grizzled Raymond Chandler style uh, noir detective that you get in Chandler's mind. And you put them together and they make this kind of good team. And obviously Henry's kind of the mentor because he's been doing it for a longer time. Yeah. So Chandler's very much the new kid. He doesn't really understand what he's meant to do initially. The core is completely new to him. He's still very angry that he's dead. Um, his son, his teenage son, is still alive and in LA. So what's the rule about that? So that they're not supposed to make contact with anyone from their former lives and if they do those people will not recognize them at all but of course he does and he ends up trying to to strike up his relationship with his son again and eventually his son realizes who he is and so they have to keep it this big secret so that the the powers that be don't find out that he is hanging around with his son and has essentially told his son everything about the core and the battle between good and evil and everything that they're not supposed to tell anybody about at all. And maybe the deacon will get his big pliers out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the the deacon is the head of the core essentially. Yeah. And you see him in these instructional videos that they give to the members of the core. Basically shouting at them about all the things that they mustn't do on pain of very horrible things <laughs> happening to them. It's really bizarre because I think he appears like in... Um, he appears sort of outside of these videos, maybe once or twice. Mm-hmm. But they do just have this endless supply of these videos. And they, keep, <laughs> and they must have just shot it like once or twice and they keep replaying all these things over and over again. And it's just him staring directly in the camera, uh, giving all these rules out. Yeah, but uh, he also does like a voiceover yeah. where sometimes narrates things that so he's almost this kind of omnipresent factor in the show oh yeah and he speaks going into and out of the ad breaks yeah so he'll kind of do a quick summary of what's just happened or summarizing the peril that they're in before a cliffhanger starts etc and then it will freeze frame and then it will carry on uh, with the next bit yeah it's, it's got got a very sort of stylized way that it's shot uh, boys very heavily from kind of you know 1970s cop style shows from the music the way that it's edited there's a lot of handheld stuff and yeah. there's lots of split screen 
there's actually some very unusual cinematography throughout the whole thing. There's yeah. weird camera angles, strange things happening. It's just shot through with this bizarre 70s black exploitation styling throughout the whole thing. Um, it makes it kind of a rough and ready kind of show. It doesn't. It's not a very polished thing, mm. but what it lacks in probably budget and, <laughs> and real slickness, it makes up for in a lot of heart. I think. Yeah, that they almost turn some of the low budget side of it into part of the show's strengths. So when they have to use slightly dodgy green screen or back projection when people are driving, they just. It's like they don't even try and pretend that it's not dodgy back protection when they're driving. It's like, because it is what it is, you know, you know, you know that's what they're doing and they're yeah. not going to make an effort. They're in a car, let's pretend it's moving. Yeah. <laughs> so the other two people who make up this core of four people who are like the main cast, mm. um, that's Ford and Decker. Yeah. I love Ford and Decker. Because normally you have the boss character in a kind of police procedural or, or, or those kind of style of shows where you've got one chief who's always grumpy and angry with everyone and shouts at them and always tells them not to do something and then they go and do it immediately. But in G vs. E, you have two different characters who essentially fulfil that role, who are kind of head of the Hollywood division, which is the, the division of the core that they're all assigned to. So there are these divisions all over the US. Yeah, all over the world. All over the world, yeah, yeah. So Ford and Decker, they make this fantastic double act where they can both be simultaneously pissed off with everybody <laughs> uh, and each other. But it's just so funny. And you can see the chemistry that the cast have with each other, that they're constantly just bouncing off each other. And it, it makes it it makes scenes which shouldn't necessarily be that funny just be really funny mm. the way they do it. And they're played by uh, Marshall Bell and Googie Grass, who Marshall Bell has been in quite a you know, lot, of, stuff, lot of things. He? he always... So he, he he's popped up all over the place over the last few decades where he's turned up as often some person in authority. He's often like a senior military official. He turned I mean he's he's been in a lot of genre things as well. He was in Total uh, Recall, yeah. um Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers. Was he in the X Files? He was in yeah, he's in he's in one of the very early X Files episodes, Fallen Angel. He appears as a colonel in that. You know, the grizzled, angry colonel who doesn't want anyone to find him there. He appeared in episodes of Millennium, loads of T V shows, loads of films. And he's he's wonderful in this. I think he's he plays you know, he does kind of play that authoritative character very well. But also he is so worn out by this job. <laughs> And so exasperated with dealing with Henry and Chandler, it's just incredible to watch this guy occasionally realise that there's nothing he can do <laughs> about what these people who are assigned to him are actually doing. Yeah, um, He plays exasperated very well and he bounces off Decker, played by Googie Gress, incredibly well. They, they make this wonderful double act, um, mm. like you said. And then in season two you kind of get a, a new main member of the cast yeah. uh, in the core, Annalise, played by uh, Christian Minter. Yeah. Who, I don't want to give too much away about her character's backstory and where she comes from, because it's kind of built in some of the episodes. But in season two, she ends up uh, joining the core as a sort of new recruit. And her and Henry start to have this kind of will-they-won't-they romance thing going on. Which is quite nice because up until that point, 
it's only really Chandler who has had a, a personal life where he's, you know, of seeing his son. So it's quite nice in season two where basically Henry and Annalise get their own personal life as well mm. together uh, if they can make it work and not get caught by Deacon because <laughs> they're not supposed to have relationships. <laughs> I think even saying that, I mean, so so the way that Annalise comes in is in, is interesting because actually very few of the characters were police beforehand. Mm. So although they work for this squad, which occasionally has to use subterfuge to pretend that what they're doing is a real criminal investigation in order to find people who've made these Faustian deals or to go around killing Morlocks. They do use that as a cover, but none of them actually were beforehand. So they kind of must get trained in this and then they're uh, released into the wild. Yeah. And because none of them have any kind of superpowers, they have no magic, they're completely mortal. So if they get killed again, then they're dead, basically. So, you know, they, they can't just go around kung fuing the bad guys like you can in Buffy or anything they're just they're just people uh, albeit people who are already dead mm. but they can still die again yeah. and you don't want to do that until you've had enough time in the core to uh, make sure that you were going to go upstairs and not downstairs when you die <laughs> <laughs> and the problem is if you get if you're an agent of the core and you're killed by a morlock then you turn into a morlock uh, which is not good yeah. yeah so the show was created by the Pate Brothers? The Pate Brothers? <laughs> is it Pate or Pate? I don't know. Pate. I always thought it was the Pate Brothers. It could be. That's because I really like Pate. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was. Maybe it was. I don't know. Uh, yeah, we'll go with... Uh, maybe, well, there's two of them. Maybe one was Pate and one was Pate. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you told them apart. They're twins. Um, yeah, and they... I'm not really sure what else they went on to do. Mm. Um, I think they did make a couple of shows afterwards. There's one called Surface that was a few years afterwards. And I think they've become uh, writers on a couple of other shows, but they've never, I think, had a, a proper series where they've been showrunners, etc. But saying that, if this is their legacy, is the one show that they'll be known for, this is fantastic. Yeah. Because it's got, it's such a unique show. It's got so much creativity behind it. It's a real shame that it stopped at just two seasons. Yeah. The first season aired on... The USA Network, yeah, and then it was cancelled or moved because then it popped up on the Sci-Fi Network yeah. afterwards, and it never really got uh, much of an audience when it was on. But if it had managed to get that audience, this it could have run for, you know, the standard seven seven series. Yeah, the the mythology that you can see them starting to build throughout the show once they're able to get going. It could have gone in in so many directions, um, and and the, the characters could have gone in, in so many directions as well. Yeah, I think under the right circumstances, it could have been a really long running, really funny action adventure show, and remembered in the same way that you know people think back and remember about things like Buffy from the yeah. late nineties that 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 did pick up and, and run and were able to build yeah. that mythology. Yeah, so it is a shame that it didn't manage to find its audience, and it's a real shame that it was never given a proper DVD release because I think even now it could find an audience out there. I think there are people who may remember it being on and have forgotten about it. There'll be people who would have been too young to even remember it when it was on who I think would really love it. Of that kind of genre show, it's it's so funny. It's got so many quirks. The, The editing style, it's got these captions that come up on the screen 
um, that aren't just time and place captions, but they just keep doing funny things with them. Like, you know, somebody will ask someone, how did it happen? And then the next scene will be a flashback and the caption will be 5.03pm, how it happened, <laughs> and things like that. It's just so much thought has gone into every part of some of those episodes. Yeah, I mean, each episode does have a similar structure. Um, and it's it's odd because for a show that didn't last very long, you can you can see the style that they had across the episodes. They developed a very specific language that they would use for the whole program. And it was clear that you can pick it up and it just, every episode feels exactly the same. The way that they often play with um, time a lot, like you said. So they, quite a few episodes are flashback episodes. Mm. There are ones where, well, there are actually quite a few, maybe four or five, that begin with um, Chandler and Henry or, or one of them in immense peril. Yeah. <laughs> and then something bad is about to happen. And then they'll have these wonderful opening credits with the music you heard earlier. Um, although, to be honest, it's Deacon who does the voiceover. <laughs> um, you can Google that There's or YouTube it or whatever. And then it would just cut back to sort of 24 hours earlier and explain the series of events that were, uh, that were taking place. And I think every episode is actually very unique, even though it had a it did have a formula to it. Because they played around with having core agents from different places. There were double agents from the core who had penetrated the Morlocks and vice versa. There were strange mystical artefacts that were involved in the overall mythology of this fight between good and evil. There were so many different strands to it. Yeah. And they got a lot done in just those 22-odd episodes. Yeah. There are some episodes that really play around with their structure as well. There's... There's that one, I think it's called Choose Your Own Evil, uh, which is done in a sort of run Lola run style uh, the same day three times where these tiny changes completely alter the outcome of what happens in this desperate situation mm. that that occurs when uh, Chandler's son Ben gets kidnapped by some Morlocks. Um, and so you, you, you see the same things play out in, in similar way that you do for Run Lola Run. Um, it's, and it's very clever. And that was only, I think, halfway through season one. Yeah. So even that early on in the show, they were really messing about with their format and they weren't afraid to do unusual structuring and, and odd episodes and just thought, you know what, we'll just trust the audience to go with it. And when they did, there's like the episode on a plane. Yeah. yeah. Know, which is just a bottle episode where they're on a plane and it revolves around maybe three or four extra characters on this plane a plane about to go down and it's actually an episode which allows you to just sit with these characters and just enjoy how funny they are especially as they're facing impending death <laughs> uh, as this plane's going down and they are struggling to find enough parachutes to get out etc it's just like every episode was so inventive yeah there's that one it's, it's very early on in season one called Buried where Chandler gets uh, abducted by some Morlocks and buried in a coffin underground and there's water and dirt coming in and he phones Henry and has to get Henry to basically mm. come and save him. And so quite a bit of the episode is either just with the camera in the coffin with Chandler or in split screen where bits of it are with him. And this was several years before that movie mm. with what's his face in. Uh, yeah, dude who isn't Captain America. Like the Deadpool guy, Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> that, so confusing. That dude. This, it's, the, it's the same dude. 
Um, but was that a film also called Buried? That was also called Buried. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this whole episode is basically like that. Except this is one brilliant part of it where Henry also gets abducted by some completely different people <laughs> and put in the trunk of a car. And you've just got split screen of one of them in the trunk of the car and the other one in the coffin just talking to each other on the phone. Shambles. <laughs> it was it was so funny and so inventive in the way that they did all of all of the editing, everything. Mm. Oh, I love it. Love it. So a typical episode of G versus E would essentially involve a case of the week where there's some human or humans who are in danger of losing their mortal soul in a Faustian deal. And what happens is there's something that you desperately want or need and a Morlock turns up, offers to get it to you in exchange for signing a contract to sell your soul away. And once you've got it, the only way you can get out of the deal is to renounce and give back whatever it was that you got. So for some people, it's like money or fame or success or to help their loved ones. Uh, you, you see a whole spectrum of reasons why people might be desperate enough to do that. And the purpose of the agents of the core is to try and prevent those deals happening. And if they do happen, to try and get the people to renounce the deal and save their soul and preferably kill the Morlocks in the process. They've got these special knives and bullets that are the only things that can kill Morlocks, the usual spiel for that kind of thing. And there's lots of variations on on that setup. Like you said, the occasional bottle episode or episode that involves, you know, another agent in peril or something like that. But that's the general premise. Uh, that that goes into each of the episodes, and it could have lasted for a long, long time. It could, it could have lasted for a long, long time. If if I was ever going to be tempted to write fan fiction, I would write G versus Z fan fiction because yeah. you could just carry on those characters, carry on that story, that mythology. You know what they should do? They should actually get all the cast back together. Look, it's not Twin Peaks, <laughs> but people want to know what happened to those characters sort of 16, 17 years later. Now is the time. That'd be awesome if they actually brought them all back to oh, do yeah. a, to do like a, like a one-off episode where they kind of followed up the story you know, much further along. It'd be so nice. Just because it was such a good programme and it didn't have the chance to end properly. We'll talk yeah. about how it actually ended a bit later on, but it didn't have the chance to have the send-off that it really deserved. And it'd be really cool if everyone just came back together Still working for the core, <laughs> but after you know another fifteen, sixteen years, that'd be really cool. Yeah, all of them still there, still exasperated, still not getting into heaven, still trying to fight the Morlocks of Hollywood. That that would be awesome. That would be really awesome. It won't happen, <laughs> but we can dream. We can dream. <laughs> so, like you say, season one was on the USA Network, yeah. and it was eleven episodes. Now, I remember reading at the time that the first episode, which is called Orange Volvo, which is the car that Henry drives because he thinks that no one in their right mind would steal an orange Volvo. And then who steals his orange Volvo? Ben steals his orange Volvo partway through the episode. But I remember reading that that episode was essentially put together from pieces of an unaired pilot episode where Chandler had a completely different partner and the setup was a bit different. And then new reshot stuff that they kind of did for a new episode one. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll come to the pilot thing later because that's for season two. But the, the premise of it is right there from the beginning and you can see the chemistry that the cast has right from the very first episode. And it, it very quickly 
shows that it's not afraid to just be bizarre. Like the the fourth episode, the one about the hairdresser hmm. and the the woman with the electrified summer house. I, I don't know what was going on about that. That was bonkers. It's called Gee, Your Hair Smells Evil. A, a lot of the titles were things just with one word replaced with the word <laughs> evil. And for years, I didn't know that that's actually some slogan of some hair product in America that's like, gee, your hair smells great or something like that. I thought it was the weirdest thing. It's called, gee, your hair smells evil. <laughs> but it wasn't. But also from an early stage, it's kind of interesting because you can look back at it now and a lot of the people who guest starred in it all went on to be famous in some way. Yeah, or they had lots of guest stars at the time who were quite big. Yeah. As well, just popping up in the show, even though not many people were seemingly watching it. Because who is that guy who was the hairdresser in G Your Hair Smells Evil? That's the dude from Game of Thrones. Does that narrow it down? One of the dudes from Game of Thrones. <laughs> One of the many dudes from Game yeah. of Thrones. Yeah, that was him. He had a bit of facial hair. Does that yeah. narrow it down? <laughs> he, was very, he was very young in that episode. Yeah. What's his name? Pedro, Pedro Pascal? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And other episodes had um, Michelle Nichols from Star Trek showing up, mm-hmm. uh, Antonio Fargus, Huggy Bear. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. For no apparent reason from Starsky and Hutch showing up. Uh, there was Erin from, is that her name? Erin from, uh, from Happy Days. Oh yeah, they have that, they have, they have that uh, bank of TV screens where they have a conference call, they're yeah. the Morlocks, and they have all these famous people on there who are supposed to be Morlocks because they've, they've become famous by striking these fast TV That's the thing, it did... It did borrow a lot of guest stars from sort of seven, 60s and 70s TV shows. Yeah, which, yeah. Which is very odd. For yeah. a show that was clearly aimed for a different generation airing at the end of the 90s. But it was really awesome, actually. There were loads of people who then popped up in in that revolving cycle of turning up on every American TV show in guest, <laughs> in guest spots all over the place. Yeah. And I, I liked, I really liked the episode in that season, uh, the To Be or Not To Be Evil episode where Henry, who's kind of secretly always wanted to be an actor, gets a chance to go undercover, where they're trying to find out if these Morlocks are running this scheme where they they get people to strike these deals to become famous actors. But he gets his head turned a little bit and actually starts to become an actor. You know, it all starts to go to his head a bit. I, I love that episode. That that's that's the one where they do the really crazy cinema scope screen for a second. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's at he's at a pool party. Once he's become a famous actor, he's at the pool party and he meets this guy who is a parody of Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And this guy sees his actress walking over to him and he says something about Come over in Cinemascope, baby and the whole screen kind of narrows down mm. so you look at it in Cinemascope in your T V and it's just for a couple of seconds and then it's back to normal. It was just weird that they were doing this stuff on a TV show back yeah. then and it just has been forgotten as a show that was on. It's very strange. Yeah. And it it makes you wonder how much license they had to just be able to do what they wanted with the show. Because it's difficult even now to imagine, you know, like a, a big network show or something, of just being able to do crazy stuff without yeah. them saying, oh, people won't understand that. People won't get what that show is yeah. about. They won't like all this crazy trickery. It's not like it took what, six seasons of Buffy to do a musical episode. <laughs> it was, you know, it's clear that these people were willing to do whatever they wanted. Mm. And it may have actually been the death of it as well. I mean, maybe maybe you just wanted something more consistent in tone. But I just think it's so wildly inventive. Yeah. And it's so much fun to watch. It's clear that they're having fun as well doing it because it, it's so, and it's always bordering on the slightly cheesy side. 
but then it always brings itself back up into being kind of fun and more it embraces what it's doing it knows occasionally if it's straying into something that's a bit of a cliche but it it will either turn the cliche on its head in some way or it will just completely embrace it and say yes this is what we're doing yes deal with it (laughs) it's a very knowing show yeah uh, which is something you didn't really get in that era because like lots of genre shows were so po-faced this was one which was it's almost like they'd sneaked onto television and they were like well let's just see what we can get away with (laughs) you know it it's put together in such a you you know you know what it almost reminds me of in some ways is uh like uh edgar wright movies in in the way that they they know what they are and they sometimes do really bizarre camera stuff and they just so and sometimes you, you watch things like um like scott pilgrim and things mm. like that where you just think some people just aren't going to get this mm. and then they surprise some people didn't get it mm. a lot of people didn't get scott pilgrim mm. to be fair but it, it it reminds me even of some of like the early stuff like um space mm. and things like that where where in space they used to just do weird editing and they used to you know embrace genre parody and just trust that the audience would get it and would go but they're completely aware of what they're doing yeah 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 and another one i like from season one is the one with the uh the heavy metal band Hmm. and the core have this guy who is sort of on their books who was a famous musician once because he had struck a deal and then they got him to renounce it and now he acts as a, a kind of liaison when they need someone to help out with the music scene. And he's this total parody of a, a kind of um, Spinal Tap style wannabe rocker who was once famous, not famous anymore. And he keeps writing these terrible songs <laughs> about what everybody is doing. Uh, it's just so inventive. So things kind of change uh, in season two a little bit. Yeah, so they expand the cast a bit. They bring in Annalise as a new character who works really well. It gets into more of a groove, I think. You know, they'd obviously been making it for a while and, well, a whole year, (laughs) but it hits its stride right away, I think. But I wonder if, but those changes that they make are probably a consequence also of it moving networks and things like that. So it does move a little bit away from being just a Faustian deal of the week. Kind of thing. There's a, they they start to build in a lot more of the mythology about the actual war that's happening between the core and the Morlocks. There are some long-term consequences of these Faustian deals which are being mm. explored, but it's still the same show at heart, actually. And what's odd, yeah, is it was only when we were rewatching it recently that Ronald E. Moore is credited in the credits mm. in the second season as I think like an executive story consultant or something. And I do wonder if he came on board as somebody to kind of bring in a more structured approach to how the series was going to be shaped. Maybe to bring in some actual mythology to make the show have a potential to last for a longer time as well. Certainly the first episode he writes is the one with the amulet in it, uh, which is entrenched in the actual war between good and evil that's been taking place. And they build upon that a lot. Yes, there are these four amulets which represent the horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's supposed to be that one side has two of them and the other side has two of them. And if if the Morlocks ever got hold of all four, then they could end the world and all, all this kind of thing. And then you get these other 
mystical relics involved that can do weird things like transport people into demons and stuff. They, they do start to build a lot more on that in the second series. And you're right, may, maybe it was an influence of someone who was trying to think more long term of this is where the story can go in, you know. How do you move it away from like a Monster of the Week episode or a yeah. standalone thing? How do you turn it into something which is a bit more serialised? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the odd things I noticed about series two is that there's an episode where one of the main kind of guest actors played a completely different character in season one in the very first episode, I think. Oh, yeah. The dude who was in Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he yeah, he pops up in is he is he in the first episode? Yeah, he's in the very first yeah. episode. And then he's he plays a completely different character in season two. It's back in that era when, when guest actors used to just pop up multiple times if your show was running for a while. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Also I'm I'm sure I remember reading at the time that there's this episode in season two called Cougar Pines. And I'm I'm sure I read back when it was first on that that had in, originally intended to be in season one and it had actually been shot and filmed and that the network didn't like it because they thought it was too funny and and they thought that people wouldn't get the show and so they didn't screen the episode but then when they made season two they put the episode out but they kept it largely the same because it has the same opening credits of season one doesn't it in season two yeah but there's this weird thing in season two where because it goes from being called good versus evil no from g versus e to good versus evil so season one it is called g versus e and in season two on the sci-fi channel they call it good versus evil but that bit in the opening credits where they say g versus e that's what it is it changes to good versus evil that's what it is but there are some episodes including that one where it still says g versus e at the beginning but anything they didn't even change the credits (laughs) they kept the season one credits on there it's bizarre I, d- I really like the episode, actually. Mm. It's a very funny episode. Obviously too funny for uh <laughs> Too funny studio. for people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and uh, there's one episode where it occasionally delves into the backstories of these characters. Mm. Uh, and the one with Henry, doesn't that suggest that he grew up in Cleveland or something? Yeah, because you get to see some of his childhood in Cleveland, yeah. in flashback, and then they all go to Cleveland... For plot purposes, and you know it's his old neighbourhood, and they see people that he used to know. Uh, what, what's the deal with? Why is Cleveland always evil? It's a place where the other Hellmouth was. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That was a good episode. That's the one with Huggy Bear, isn't it? That's with Huggy Bear and Uhura. Yeah, yeah. It's Henry's mum. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and there's a there's an episode uh, for wrestling fans. Yeah. There's one. Is it season two? It might it might be late season one or early season two roundabout. Yeah, then. Sunday Night Evil, uh, which features the appearance of what was his name from WW? Was it even WWF back then? It might have actually been. I think it was WWF back, back then. then yeah. yeah. What was it? It was uh, Mick Foley. Mankind. Mankind. Yeah. Also known as Cactus Jack. Yeah. Turning up as a as a is he actually a a core agent or is he just helping the core out? No, he's like, isn't he like an old friend of Henry's or something? That's the one, yeah. And they get him to come and help out because they're investigating the meteoric rise of this wrestler who has signed a Faustian deal to become famous. Uh, And so they they get Mick Foley to come and help them out to try and convince him. And then Lou Frigno. Oh, yeah, there's a cameo from Lou Frigno right at the beginning. Yay! (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's lots where they just 
go completely into a particular theme for a mm. week. There's one that is a, a kind of, it's a wonderful life type episode where Chandler goes to see an old friend of his, who of course doesn't recognise him, um, and his friend is trying to kill himself. So a lot of it is just them kind of sitting in his flat, just talking about what's mm. happened to him, without him knowing that it's actually his old best friend who's sitting right there trying to help him through all of this. So it's, it's kind of a semi-bottle episode in, in some way, I guess. But it does actually move the plot forward quite a lot because it changes Chandler's perspective on things. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. I think it's, I mean, like, so like we were saying earlier, it, it clearly didn't have the biggest budget. Mm. So you do get a lot of bottle episodes and there's some very ropey special effects in the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but it was only, again, when we were re-watching it. I don't know what episode it is. Do you remember which one? Um... um the bit where with Henry and the door oh man it might was it it was like early season two or late season one or something he's Chandler is off doing something that he can't tell Ford and Decker about I don't know if he's with Ben or or something that Henry can't reveal and Ford and Decker want to know where Chandler is because they're sick of this personal business yeah (laughs) (laughs) and Henry Henry can't get out of their office uh, and then he claims that he's got personal business to, to go to, and they're like, "What?" And then what happens is he, so, so he just kind of charges towards a glass door. Yeah. Does he, he try to kick it? He throws a bin at it. He throws a bin. And then he tries to kick the rest of the glass out of the door. <laughs> but he just falls on his ass. And it's odd because they must just not had the money to redo it because he falls on his ass. And then he kind of looks a bit stunned and looks around at the camera and then gets up and kind of like, kicks his way through the last bit and leaves. But it's clear that they just did it once. It didn't, you know, it didn't go, it didn't go according to plan and they just kept it in. But it's nothing like watching a TV show when they don't have the money to redo a shot like that. So it just has a man falling on his ass in full, in like full screen. That's the, that's the only shot. It was clearly what they spent all the money on. He kicks, the, he kicks the glass in, falls on his ass, uh, and then he has to kind of get up and sheepishly go through it, <laughs> but whilst, you know, uh, retaining his cool exterior. Yeah. yeah. To be fair, I think if I tried to kick the glass out of a door, I'd fall on my ass as well. <laughs> but you're not Henry McNeil. No, I'm not Henry McNeil. <laughs> but I, just, I thought, I just stopped and like, rewind, rewind, we've got to watch that again. Did he actually fall on his ass? Because it wasn't like a situation where they made a joke about it uh, it was it ha- clear it, it was clear it had happened and his look at the camera was part partly an apology and partly a sense of are we going to redo this again <laughs> and when clearly no one has reacted he's just like well i'm going to get through this door anyway so he kind of gets up in a kind of stumbly fashion and kind of goes through it and it's like oh it's bonkers you just imagine there's someone behind the camera shaking their head as if to say we haven't got another door <laughs> you're going through that door we're keeping this in the episode. Oh. Oh, so many good episodes. There's that one that's um, it's like Rear Window. Oh, yeah. Lots of shows do a Rear Window episode. Yeah. G South did a Rear Window yeah. episode. But that's one where, where Henry has uh, saved... Well, Chandler saves Henry's life and then Henry saves Chandler's life and Chandler gets injured and is the reason why he's like stuck in his room while he's rehabilitating and can't get out. And then while he's having a whole rear window Faustian deal plot going on, 
Henry is having a tribunal that could potentially see him move on up to mm. heaven. Um, in in some ways, it almost feels like a final episode, mm. um, except that it it's the penultimate episode because the final episode is Bonkersville. Oh yeah, so that was the so it's odd because although I've seen the show a couple of times, like right through, the last episode Underworld, I seem to have blocked out of my memory because yeah. it makes absolutely no sense in the context of what has happened before. Yeah. It's the only conclusion that we can come to is that huge chunks of the final episode Underworld are actually the unaired pilot. Yeah. The bits of the unaired pilot that they didn't use to put into original Which is quite episode. a lot actually. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's odd because it it's a follow-up. So it takes place with Henry and Chandler discussing how they kind of got into the core and what their futures might be, etc. And it uses that as a framing device uh, to show in flashback Chandler's first day in the core and him being partnered with uh, an agent called, what was his name, Virgil? Something, Yeah, something like that. Who is assigned to show him the ropes, take him around. And their first case involves Chandler finding the Morlock who originally killed him. But the thing is, many, many, many things in this episode completely retcon everything that you saw in the real first episode of the show, but also things that have happened throughout the series in terms of discussing Henry's past, which apparently is quite different now, knowledge of the amulets etc which appears in season two quite late on is apparently something that Chandler knew about from the very beginning all of his training um, which initially he got from Ford and Decker and the videotapes from Deacon are all actually in this version of events relayed to him by this new partner who obviously is going to disappear by the end of the episode because because it's a flashback and this character no longer appears and the fact that it He's also staying in some weird hotel, the Ravenswood, which is purgatory or something. And they clearly want to overdo the the heaven and hell and purgatory analogy a lot in the original pilot. But they've ignored purgatory in the series proper. Yeah, it it, it doesn't really make any sense. And the tone is so different. If if that was the unaired pilot, the tone of the pilot, it, it had lost... You know, almost all of its humour. Because yeah. um, Chandler's still wisecracking. Yeah. And still doing his his Humphrey Bogart kind of gumshoe style um, approach to uh, core work. But it's weird not having Henry around to bounce off. Yeah, it doesn't really work without yeah. Henry. And you, you don't have any of the funky editing. The music is different. Like you say, that they lean very heavily on the whole purgatory thing. There's that old woman in the hotel mm. who tries to tell them that it's purgatory. Who I recognise her. She's been in about a billion different <laughs> movies. Um, she's in the Wedding Singer. She's the woman in the Wedding Singer who uh, he's teaching to sing. Why do you remember this? <laughs> I don't know. I just remembered her from the Wedding Singer. <laughs> and like you say, there's it retcons Henry's past. It retcons Chandler's first day. It. There are some shows where, in my mind, there are certain episodes that I have struck out of the canon mm. for certain series where I think, nope, that episode ain't canon, that's not going in my brain bank. 
And I think that's what happens with this yeah. episode. And it's sad that it's the last one. Yeah. I don't know why they even made it. Because actually the previous episode would have served as a better series finale. Yeah, yeah. Um, with Henry's tribunal and, and everything going on, that would have made a nice kind of you know end of season two. But to have to... It looks almost like they were forced to produce one last episode. And maybe they thought, well, you know, if they know they're going to go, maybe they just decided to say, well, two-thirds of the episode can be the unaired pilot and we'll just have some scenes with uh, Henry and Chandler kind of wrapping it all up. But it was a sad way to end it. Mm. Although maybe at that point no one was watching anyway. (laughs) But there, there are a couple of really weird things about that episode, even weirder than all the rest of it. When is it you notice that there's a bit that's in the opening credits the whole time? Oh, yeah. So there's so the opening credits, has, you know, a lot of these shows often have credits which include short snippets or freeze frames of pieces of episodes. Hmm. So like in Buffy, for example, you know, it was that style of show, you know, when they used to have intercutting of scenes and things playing over the opening credits with the theme music playing. It was all very stylized, etc. In the Good versus Evil um, opening credits, there was a scene which I'd never noticed was never actually one that appeared in the first season. Mm. So often the credits would have been made after a few episodes had been done so that there was some footage that you could cut into it. But there was one scene that I just thought, oh, that's, you know, there must be something on the cutting room floor. I don't know what that's about. It wasn't that important. It was just a it was a shot of Chandler, I think, being kicked in the head or something and looking (laughs) slightly gormless at the camera. But then actually that appears in the final episode, yeah. Um, which is odd. I mean, it also tells you that this was probably the unaired pilot because mm. it would have been the first thing that was shot and that footage would have been available. Maybe they never thought they would have to reuse that footage again. Yeah. But it's very odd to suddenly see it popping up because there's something, it's almost like a subliminal message you've seen in every episode has been a few shots in the pilot and then all of a, um, and then all of a sudden you actually see that episode right at the very end of the series. Yeah. And then there's this bit where... Um... He's training this woman who has made a Faustian deal and she goes to a cinema where there's a contact there that she's meeting. I'd kind of lost the plot of the episode by that point, to be honest. But she goes to the cinema and it's one of those slightly faded, old, grand, kind of big Hollywood style cinemas, huge screen. And in the shots that you can see from behind them, where you can see the screen, the film that's on the screen is footage yeah. from the buried episode yeah. of Henry when he's been abducted by someone, basically getting tortured by someone. Yeah. And you can see that it's Henry on the screen. Yeah, which is, yeah, that's really because it's that black and white movie, isn't it? Yeah. And they kind of hover on it once or twice just to make a point of it, but they don't go into the fact that essentially this is Chandler's first day and yet he's seeing an event on the cinema screen which takes place in what's clearly potentially a different continuity <laughs> that took place a few episodes after that yeah um it's completely bonkers oh it's a bit when uh henry is being uh, tortured by the mexican yeah 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 my goodness because they the, yeah it's very weird that they would choose to use that it's a knowing thing to put it in but i don't get what the point of it was unless you're really supposed to think something really crazy is going on but i didn't that's the case i think that was <laughs> You know, it was just a joke to maybe put Henry back in those flashbacks a little bit. Yeah. 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 So that, that last episode is just strange. Yeah. So maybe stop watching at the penultimate episode. Yeah. <laughs> or if, if, 
if you want to watch the last episode out of curiosity, then go right ahead. But later on, when you feel like watching it again, you'll probably stop after Portrait of Evil and not bother with Underworld again because it's in in my mind it's not part of the G story. It's just some crazy thing that happened in the end. Now, of course, we're telling everyone to uh, go and watch it. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a slight problem with that, which is that it's also one of those shows which never got a proper release. It was never released on DVD. It hasn't really been re-aired since the mid-2000s, yeah. maybe. It's a problem. I, I don't know if it's a like a rights problem, where I know back in the day when it wasn't standard for everything to come out on DVD no matter how you know well or badly it done in the ratings things like you know the license to use the music and stuff like that were a problem i know there were some shows from the 80s that were only released on dvd with half the music changed yeah. because they didn't have the right licensing to release these things because no one really expected that you would release things on dvd just as a standard measure yeah. um i'm not even sure that it's on any of the streaming services no no i think yeah. there's so so i think the only way you can really watch it with any ease is is on YouTube where it's broken into lots of parts etc yeah. there are some uh, copies of it floating around online I think which are sort of complete episodes but the quality is pretty poor mm-hmm. they're all second third generation VHS you know recordings off off TV channels and things and they're very poorly edited and things like that which is a real shame yeah. um, that it's so hard to get decent copies of episodes I mean, it's never been released, which is a real travesty. Like you said earlier on, I mean, for the for the generation that was watching Buffy and Angel, etc., if this had been on at the same time on those same networks, mm. it may have actually gone a very different path to how it actually ended up. Uh, maybe it was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it would have caught the attention, I think, of, of the Buffy audience. Yeah, And I still think it's the kind of thing which... If you do like those kind of shows, it's well worth trying to seek out. It's actually one of those things where it's the only show which I really remember watching and really loved, but I'm surprised that it never, ever came out on DVD. Yeah. Um, it, it's such a shame because if, if, if they could release an official version with you know good picture quality or as as good a picture quality as you can get from some of the you know late 90s stuff because even some of those early episodes of Buffy you watch on DVD now and the the picture quality is a bit fuzzy yeah, yeah I, I just wish they would and they should get the four back together again yeah that'd be awesome I'd, I'd love to see a proper DVD box set you know with some extras um you know just exploring some of this behind the scenes stuff some of these decisions have got made what on earth's going on with this yeah. underworld episode and I think the premise itself, it was really clever. Yeah. It worked just like those shows that were around in the late 90s when there was this boom in genre shows, although admittedly a lot of stuff was cancelled at that point as well. One of those things where it had scope to be standalone and also have a kind of arc that would run through the whole series. And it really could have gone on to a much wider audience and gone on for a couple of more seasons. It's a real shame. It was kind of hitting its stride in series two and then it disappears. And it's a shame they have to end on an episode that doesn't really have the same level of quality as as the previous ones. But what you do have in the previous um, episodes is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's well worth watching. It's 
well worth you know going back and reappraising if you've never heard of it it's worth looking into um and yeah please please whoever has the rights to it please release it on dvd <laughs> please <laughs> it's the kind of thing you probably try and kickstart an official dvd release. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even know who would be able to actually say yes i've heard that the only copy the only high high quality copy is kept uh, in a safe uh, owned by uh, Marshall Bell. <laughs> <laughs> and every year he gets the other people over and they all sit down and watch it and go, hmm, those are the good old days. Mm. At least that's what I wish happens. And they all sit around toasting marshmallows. <laughs> ah, well, good versus evil. That's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> So that's it for episode 10. We finally did it. Yeah. Double digits. Yay. Yay. Uh, thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's kind of an unusual one doing this retrospective. We've actually got some ideas for some other shows that we think might be worth a similar reappraisal. Yeah. But we're just trying to figure out if we can find a way to watch them. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think it'd be really cool to uh, to go back to some of these shows as well and and think about the ones that haven't been given the same level of praise that shows like the X-Files and Buffy were getting in the 90s. Mm. Yeah, we, we've got we've got some thoughts. Got some thoughts, some opinions. Yeah, um, got a little list. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, if you remember G vs. Z, please tell us. Yeah, we'd, we'd really, really love to hear from anyone else who <laughs> remembers G vs. Z, just so we know that it isn't a fever dream we had one day. <laughs> <laughs> If you like what you're listening to, please follow us on Twitter at TFCAA. Mm-hmm. You can like us on Facebook, where we have a page where we'll occasionally update it with what's going on. And we have a website, timeforcakesnail.com. But please get in touch and uh, keep listening. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Yeah, that's it for episode 10. Next mm-hmm. time, episode 11. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>